welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, June 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. It's ASCO time. The world's largest meeting on cancer research starts on Friday in Chicago. This is the first time the meeting will be held in person since the pandemic began. Healthcare strategist Jared Holtz of Oppenheimer joins us to discuss the view from Wall Street. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including a pivotal moment for gene therapy, the promise of ultra-cheap genomics, and how the expanding monkeypox outbreak is creating challenges for public health agencies. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and how can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so how was uh, everyone's memorial day weekend <laughs> don't all <laughs> don't all chime in at once i mean uh i spent a lot too much time at airports for my liking but the intervening moments were enjoyable Mine was spent at home, but it was good. How was yours, Adam? I hear you saw Top Gun. I saw Top Gun. It was it was it was as good as you would expect it to be. Uh, you know, classic summer blockbuster movie. Highly recommend. I do. The only downside to these these weekends is I feel like you know they have Monday off, and then like there's not a lot of news that happens on these weeks. But looking ahead, Damien, you are going to be covering uh, a pair of FDA advisory panels for two different Bluebird gene therapy trials that are coming up. Uh, and these are pretty important, not only for Bluebird, but maybe for the entire gene therapy industry, right? I think so, yeah. So next week, over the course of two days, the FDA will convene um, its scientific advisors to talk about two separate gene therapies from Bluebird, as you mentioned, each of which has had a somewhat rough and tumble path to this moment. But even zooming out from kind of the, the bluebird of it all, this will be the first time that this group will convene to discuss a specific product for five years. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the sort of undeniable promise of gene therapy, the future of gene therapy, but also the difficulties that everyone in the field really has had um, scientifically and in terms of safety, but also regulatorily, like pinning down the FDA on exactly what they want from a novel gene therapy before granting it approval has been 
a struggle, I think it's fair to say. Earlier this week, Biomarin, a company that has developed a gene therapy for hemophilia A, which was previously rejected by the FDA when I think everyone in that world expected it to be approved, they said that it had been further delayed, granted just by a number of months, but it just kind of heaps the uncertainty upon this process. And for that reason, I have no doubt that many, many people, whether scientists, patients, uh, or other companies involved in gene therapy will be watching for what plays out with this Bluebird saga, just because it's quite likely to have implications for everyone in the field. And Meg, you you covered uh, these gene therapies as well as Damien and I. And I mean, do you don't you feel like the kind of I don't want to say the bloom is up the rose, but like to use that cliche, but like it, the excitement and optimism around gene therapy um, has has waned a little bit because because the field has struggled. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think maybe three or four years ago, we were just starting to see some of the promise of the the promise and the potential of things like these hemophilia gene therapies. You had J.J. Bienname, the CEO of Biomarin, talking at the J.P. Morgan healthcare conference about how this could potentially be a drug with a multi-million dollar price tag. Um, you had Things like Spark um, with their, you know, eye gene therapy. We're just starting to see early results from that. Some of these have been successes. I mean, Spark was acquired by Roche. The the drug is out there. Others, as you've pointed out, um, have taken longer and maybe are not looking quite as promising. And now there are just so many of these companies working on gene therapy. It's, you know, not all will succeed. There are there are so many out there, and I think the I think the problem is really from the from the business side too. I think that's one of the biggest issues, right? Is that um, you know companies have struggled to uh, to figure out how to market these things. You know, they're these are one time therapies. They have uh, carry a very very high price tag. You know, one million two million dollars. Um, you know, and and the and the the idea here is that you know you, it's a large upfront, but you obviously uh, the value of the therapy um, extends, you know, essentially, well, you know, theoretically forever if you're going to cure a patient. But how do you pay for that, right? How do you? Um, a lot of insurance companies will balk at paying um, that you know one two million dollars upfront, so they want to spread the payments out over time. And, and it's been very difficult, I think, for the, the relatively few gene therapies to sort of figure that out. And you know, um, Damien. You know, Bluebird, for instance, had has their gene therapy approved in Europe for beta thalassemia, but had to pull it off the market um, because they could never reach an agreement with European countries about pricing. Right. And so, you know, no matter how the discussion goes next week and what the FDA does, there is definitely still a mountain to climb commercially for both Bluebird and, and likely some other gene therapy companies. But the the other thing that I think everybody's kind of grappling with just from the FDA perspective is, as you mentioned, these are meant to be therapies whose benefits extend for a lifetime. But how much data do you need to impute what a lifetime looks like? And I think, you know, in Bluebird's case, they have up to, I think, seven years of follow-up for each of their products. I think other gene therapy companies might have even more, but seven years in the course of, you know, whatever the average lifespan is for an American is, is a small fraction. And so there's some amount of hypothesizing that has to go here and some amount of articles of faith that have to go here and and the actual nature of how these approvals will take shape i mean still remains to be seen especially as some gene therapy companies are moving on or moving past the very rare and quite often fatal diseases that were initial targets for the technology into things where 
you know, they may be debilitating, but are not necessarily life threatening based on current treatments that are available. And that changes the calculus from the FDA perspective as well. Yeah, what I find particularly interesting about Bluebird when we talk about them specifically is that you know this is a company that has always excelled at the science of gene therapy. I think that they have figured it out um, before a lot of other companies did, and even when they struggled, even when they came up with um, inevitable setbacks on the science side, you know they were able to overcome those. You know where they where they have really struggled. Uh, is commercially, financially, you know, the company, you know, lately the company is all the headlines coming out of the company are about, you know, it's lack of cash and they've been laying off people and, uh, and you know, a lot of questions about whether they'll they'll even be able to survive. Uh, but, you know, that this upcoming FDA panel sort of gets back to the science side to some respect. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's more in Bluebird's wheelhouse. Um, and so we'll see what they, what they're able to do and what the kind of the concerns that FDA has about these gene therapies and, um, you know, and if they get approved, ultimately, whether Bluebird will be able to ultimately be able to market them. In other news this week, a milestone that has been talked about for years in the genome sequencing world appears to potentially have been met. Damien, tell us about the $100 genome. That's right. So this week, a company called Ultima Genomics out of the Bay Area, I hate this phrase, but emerged from stealth. Uh, and I apologize. But anyway, I hadn't heard of them. And then suddenly everyone had heard of them is basically what happened. Anyway, in their introductory press release, which was accompanied by some preprint papers, which is to say those not yet peer reviewed, the company disclosed one, that it had raised some $600 million to finance its operations. And two, that it had figured out a way to sequence a whole human genome for a cost of $100 per genome. The company, so uh, our colleague Jonathan Wozen reached out to them and, and wrote a story about it, which I recommend people read. They didn't get into the specifics of how they calculated that $100 number. I think we all remember from past price milestones in genomics, they're quite often like, you know, if you do X number of sequencings at a time, it breaks down to X dollars per genome. It's not necessarily pushing a button in exchange for $100, um, but it's still... You know, this was, this is, as you said, Mike, a milestone that everybody kind of had in their minds as a thing that someone might achieve. And the backdrop for this is that Illumina, which we've talked about on this podcast before, they control something like 94-ish percent, depending on when it's taken, of the market for genome sequencing services and technologies in the world. And so whenever we see a new company promising to do sequencing faster, more accurately, more broadly, and especially more cheaply than Illumina, it often gets framed as, is this the thing that finally, if not unseats, but at least you know seriously challenges the virtual monopoly that Illumina has? And so that $100 threshold has long been kind of waved around as that'll be the thing that really changes the narrative. And I mean, at this point, it's very much, we'll see people who looked at the preprint kind of surmise that, yes, the, the, the claims seem to be backed up by what they have scientifically, but it cannot be, I should say, we shouldn't make any prognostications until those claims are validated externally, until those uh, papers are peer-reviewed, and until basically the community that actually consumes these products has a chance to kick the tires on this, which may take a serious amount of time. But this is all kind of being unveiled in the lead up to a big genomics conference that starts next week. And I think that's when we'll really get to see how like the chattering class of scientists kind of picks apart some of these claims. So Damien, I have a question for you about this. Uh, and this might sound ignorant. Uh, but <laughs> what benefit do people get from 
a one hundred dollar genome. And by people, I mean like you know, like you and I, regular the people. regular yeah. people out there. So the genome, you can sequence a genome cheaper. Like, what is what? How will I benefit from that? Well, I think as genomics has become more and more mainstream, people would point to a stumbling block of cost, which is to say they would take for granted that everyone, or not everyone, but that, you know, a sizable number of patients would benefit from whole genome sequencing who currently aren't getting it because it's not financially reasonable for payers or anyone out of pocket to pony up for how much genome sequencing costs. In the years, in recent years, I think there has been an acceptance in science that the our understanding of what we get from whole genome sequencing is still so incomplete. So, as, you know, it's not a diagnostic. You're getting a lot of information about what's in people's DNA, much of which is at best like hypothesis generating for scientists. So to your question, if it costs $100, if it costs $1, would it still be useful for, you know, everyone to get sequenced? On the one hand, you know, the, the, the sort of research answer would be yes. The NIH, the UK, uh, other groups ha have gone to great lengths to try to sequence as many people as possible as a means of supporting research. Now, would it be helpful for you or me personally in our lives? I mean, no, probably not. But I, I guess the the or the optimistic take would be the lower you can get that price, the easier it will be to do the kind of large scale genomic research that people say is necessary to elucidate some of the mysteries that still exist in the human genome. And so, you know, maybe a virtuous cycle would take place the cheaper and cheaper this gets. Well, I actually have personal experience with this because I sequenced my whole genome with Illumina for a story a few years ago. Have, have you guys had your genome sequenced or even done like 23andMe? I, I feel like the only people that I know who have done that are reporters who have done it for <laughs> stories. Matt Herper did it for a story. I think that that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Matt, like you had the same geneticist as me, who's like the geneticist to journalists, Robert <laughs> Green, um, <laughs> Brigham and Women's. Um, but I actually have found it, particularly throughout my two pregnancies, to be more of a hindrance than a help. Mm, how so? My genome sequencing turned up factor five Leiden, which is a mutation. I only have one copy, but uh, it, it's not a super uncommon mutation um, to have but it raises my risk of blood clots. Um, I don't have two copies, which would significantly raise my risk, but it is it is raised. And so that's something to know, you know, get up on planes, you know, long car rides, walk around, kind of the things you should always do anyway. But now that I'm pregnant, the doctors, every time they look at my chart, you know, the ones who don't know me very well are like, so what are you doing to manage your Vector 5 Leiden? <laughs> I'm like, nothing. They're like, why do you even know about it? And I'm like, I, they're like, have you, have you had a clot? And I'm like, no, I got my genome sequenced for a story and a healthcare <laughs> reporter. Like, they're trying to put me on blood thinners. I'm like, I don't need this, you know? So that's interesting. So did you, can I ask you, did you voluntarily put that in your medical record? Like, I, you were doing this for a story. I did. Okay, so you did. So, all right, that's, yeah, because I mean, because. But now I'm like, maybe I shouldn't wow, have. Okay. Because, like, I am not sure always that like it needs to be treated, you know? And like, I think there's just this level of like understanding of genetics. Like, what do you do with this information? And now like, I think 23andMe will provide you with the fact that you might have factor five Latin. So it's much more accessible than somebody who's going to go do a full genome sequence with Illumina, for example. Um, and I just, I haven't found it that useful. However, you know, I also haven't had a blood clot. So maybe that knowledge has 
led to behaviors that would help me avoid that, but I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done whole genome sequencing. I have done exome uh, work through 23andMe, and every risk factor that was presented to me without, you know, doubting the veracity of the findings, a doctor's advice for that would be to eat well, to exercise, to not smoke cigarettes, to watch how much you drink, which to your point, Meg, these are just, that's just advice for staying alive as a human being. So the actual practical utility. But you ignore all that advice. <laughs> as we speak. Well, in order to record this podcast, I need all of those things at the same time. But no, I mean, I, I do think it's an open question as to what the practical utility is for an individual, um, for any of these services. And, and, and that will remain kind of a, an unchecked box, I think, for this. And five or six years ago, I got a 23andMe spit test as a holiday gift, and it's still in my desk drawer. <laughs> You'll never know just how much Neanderthal DNA you have. No, not yet. Um, so moving on to one more topic, and I don't know, Meg, I, I, I feel bad about throwing all the plague-like uh, topics to you, but is there anything new to say about monkeypox? <laughs> well, the cases worldwide keep mounting, um, and... Our colleague, the wonderful Helen Branswell, had a really great story this week um, talking with somebody from the WHO uh, just about how to um, try to message around this and the complexities of the fact that the majority of the cases appear to be in men who have sex with men. Not all of the cases, but it is a population uh, that should be made aware of a potential risk for the community, even though it is not uh, uniquely risky for that community. It's risky for anybody who has close contact with somebody with a case of monkeypox. Um, but it's just really interesting sort of hearing about how public health officials think about this and the importance of getting the awareness out in that community without stigmatizing that community, which has already been so stigmatized, of course, through the HIV epidemic um, and other things. So, you know, the, the case numbers are increasing. And there is a concern, I think, that we are seeing from people in public health that it could be tough to get our arms around this, even though it is much less contagious than COVID. It's a very different virus. Um, if it gets entrenched uh, in new places, it could be difficult to um, to really control. Um, and we might be dealing with it on a bigger way than we really have. recording Thursday morning, about 18 hours since we taped the previous segment, and Adam is currently making his way to Chicago for the American Society of Clinical Oncology Meeting, or ASCO, the world's largest cancer research conference. So every year, this is one of the biggest events for the biotech industry, both in terms of catching up, obviously, on the latest in cancer treatment, but also for Wall Street and its outlook on biotech stocks. And this year's meeting comes as biotech stocks have been in the doldrums, with one benchmark index down more than 40% in the last 12 months. So what does this weekend hold and what could it do for biotech's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year? Joining us to discuss that is Jared Holtz, healthcare strategist with Oppenheimer. Jared, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start by setting the stage for where things stand for biotech on Wall Street heading into this big conference weekend. You last joined us in January when you described sentiment as, quote, the most dour the healthcare buy side has been in your experience, which is almost a decade in this sort of role. So what has happened since then? Uh, nothing good, Meg. The feels like the index is 
gone down almost every week since that conversation. And there have been, you know, pockets where there's been some relief rally, mainly driven by the broader market. But broadly speaking, it continues to be the most challenging backdrop we, we've seen in, in the history of this sector. Um, I was looking a couple of days ago and noticed that my screen had 820 biotech stocks on it that were publicly traded and more than 500 have an enterprise value below $100 million. So this has just become one of the most enigmatic subsectors within healthcare. And I feel like the, the rebound or the resuscitation of biotech is going to take a while. So with that said, is there any expectation that this weekend, some of the excitement around biotech could be reinvigorated by positive data on some of the cancer treatments that we expect to see or people getting back together in person, a sort of reality check about like sometimes drugs do work? I, I know you said it would take a while, but do you think there could be a bump in sentiment based upon the days to come? Well, hopefully, I think we're at a point in which anything positive should have some sort of an uplifting impact on the broader group. I think to me that the most significant aspect of ASCO over the next few days could be, like you alluded to, just the meeting of the minds and investors seeing each other, talking to doctors in person. This is really, this is going to be the first live medical meeting in a number of years for obvious reasons. And I think just the networking effect um, could have a positive impact on the sector broadly. But from a data standpoint, and, and so many of these abstracts were, have already been released or were released last week, I'm just not sure we're going to get anything significant that in a vacuum alone is going to produce some significant sentiment shift coming out of the conference. That said, what are you watching out of the weekend? Like, Are there any particular data sets or companies or stocks that you think will be really important to keep an eye on? Well, this entire field is kind of dominated by large cap pharma now. Um, you know, ASCO five, six years ago, the the focus or the, the primary focus was on immunotherapies and, and what happened with Bristol and Merck. And, and now that these treatments have become standard of care, most of the data sets, in my opinion, that we're getting are now much more on the fringe than things that I feel like are going to be very clinically meaningful. Uh, they could result in drugs that get to market and are used here and there. But in terms of the lion's share of this oncology market, I think what we have now between immunotherapy and chemotherapy and some add-on treatments um, make the data sets here every year perhaps less compelling. Um, I'm looking at some companies that have already provided a glimpse into their data um, Gilead, Marathi, Iovance, um, PMB Pharma. There's a couple others that I feel like because of the way that the markets work are going to be scrutinized more than others. But I'm not sure that we get information that is going to be viewed as, you know, far more than incremental based on what we've seen. And this is only over the past week. But even those I do not think are going to move overly materially. So zooming out from oncology, you know, in the past few months during this downturn for biotech, we've seen what appears to be positive data from various companies be rewarded, if that's the right word, with their stocks only further declining, if not just staying flat. So what is your sense more broadly of what it would take to turn things around 
for the sector sentiment wise in the months or I guess even years to come? Well, I think one of the reasons why positive data used to have a, a greater effect um, to the upside is that the the markets were not as well defined. We had less companies, we had less assets. And so the significant the significance of one particular data point had a had much greater influence. And now with nearly a thousand companies in the in the public realm and many that are private, those same data points, just given the saturation of, of this industry, I feel like is having diminishing marginal return. So even if you provide good data, the street is immediately looking at two things. They're first looking to see if large cap pharma has a presence in that therapeutic category. And then they're looking to see on the private side, what companies are forming or have formed in that therapeutic category. And typically, companies that are reporting any sort of data, one or both is likely to happen. For that reason, I think investors are much more skeptical that these data sets in isolation are going to have a big impact. But to answer the question, I think we have to get to a point where there where there's actually less asset or stock selection to be had. And that would be, that would come in the form of mergers with respect to the small and micro cap biotech community, less publicly formed corporations. And once we get to that point, then I think the this sector can actually work. But with 500 companies in biotech below $100 million in enterprise value, and only 40 between 2 billion and 80 billion, it's very questionable what the biotech index actually is. Has this sort of dichotomy that you're describing in terms of so many little companies and a few very big ones, has this ever really happened before? Like, have we gone through a cycle where there's been too many companies and they have right sized themselves somehow? Or are we just sort of going to be watching this unprecedented process unfold through some combination of mergers, some combination of some companies not making it. I mean, we've seen biotechs go bankrupt before and their assets go around, but usually it's like sort of one-offs. Are we just about to see this giant domino effect? I think we almost have to. There, there are so many assets and so many compounds in development and companies, I feel like at this point, are going to have a very, very tough time going from where they are to crossing the finish line, whatever that may be, whether that's commercialization, whether that's reading out a phase three trial We've never been in this situation before. Um, just in the last four years, the sector has kicked out nearly 500 new companies. So pretty much half of this entire industry group has been formed or created over just the last four to five years. So we've never seen anything like this. And it's interesting because the the investor base um, that seems to be sort of like the most alarmed by what's going on were the same characters that essentially created this to begin with in terms of funding private companies, seeing them through the IPO stage, et cetera. So I feel like that has to kind of reconcile at some point as well. What's interesting because it does feel like in many ways, the Wall Street sentiment has decoupled from what you hear at medical meetings from the sort of MD, PhD types in a lot of these fields. And I wonder, you know, what effect might this kind of like financial maelstrom you're talking about have on the fact that, you know, like some of the positive data we're talking about from genome editing programs from, you know, some stuff outside of oncology or even within oncology does seem to be like potentially 
transformational for people with diseases who perhaps unfortunately are relying on some number of these possibly not needing to exist companies to actually deliver these things to the point where they'd be accessible to patients. So I don't know how to end that with a question mark, but I do wonder like, you know, everything that's going on with biotech on the market side, how is that resonating with people on the MD-PhD side, people in patient groups, people who are depending on Wall Street working in this sense in order to to make these like innovations actually practicable? We as a as an industry group, whether it's patients or clinicians or people on Wall Street, we talk about we use the word innovation a lot, right? It's probably one of the most overused words to describe what's happening in the in this industry. But I think we also have to be very careful about what innovation means because it also means displacement and it means uncertainty. And when other industry groups or other sectors talk about innovation, a lot of investors actually get scared of that because that means that there is the rapid rate of change makes it very difficult to actually assess or analyze how good or bad these assets are going to be, right? Innovation put Blockbuster Video out of business. Innovation is killing Netflix as we speak. So is innovation like actually a good thing? I would argue it's only good for patients long-term like you alluded to. For this business, I think it's actually a negative because it creates this constant cycle of paranoia, not knowing where the next good or bad data set is gonna come from. And then what's gonna come behind that and behind that and behind that. And so like, if we're in this kind of perpetual innovation cycle, to me, that's a, it's actually a negative for this industry group as Wall Street sees it, even though long-term it's good for all of us on this call because it means that the medicine down the road will likely be better as the industry broadly and also Wall Street can better assess the true winners. But I think that takes a lot of time. Wow, that pronouncement I think is up there with a famous Goldman Sachs note uh, that proclaimed cures are bad for Wall Street. (laughs) Right, it's bad. Like this innovation, like every time that a biotech like, you know, Meg, like super well, and, and Damien, you too, like you have these biotech portfolio managers that come on your programs and talk about the industry and they're always bullish, right? Because they're, they're, they run net long money. They're, they're typically very, very tied to the overall market. They're not short, they're net long, right? And their net long thesis is based on what there's innovation and we've never seen better innovation, but all this innovation has basically it's destroyed the the market value of the companies involved. Like Bluebird, remember all the excitement like five years ago, like they were gonna cure everything. It's like gonna, it's like out of business is as far as like I'm concerned and many portfolio managers and other people on, at the investment banking level are, are concerned. It's not even an, an entity that it's very problematic when you have like these dreams that seem like they're gonna actually hit. And then 24, 36 months later, like they're out of business. That's pretty scary. Like this Excel sheet that I've been running, it's insane. Like 550 companies out of the 830 are basically worthless. So I keep on, like I was on with Melissa, I told you the other other day, Meg, like there's 40 companies that are like investable, maybe. As far as like, if you walked into a mutual fund and you pitched this sector, that these investors would actually buy. The rest are just like, Lord knows. And like, they're all running out of cash. You know, yes, they can be financed again by the, you know, the same cast of characters that were involved in the last round, but it's not overly promising. Like innovation again, like 
it's great for all of us because it means like medicine is getting better. But what does it mean for like the health of this industry? I don't know. One last question for you, Jared. Are you going to ASCO? I think I'm going to skip it. I think I'm going to skip it. Why? We've got a lot of um, analysts on the research team here that are going. And I feel like just given what we've already seen out of the abstracts and again, what I feel are going to be mainly smaller updates on the spectrum, I think they can, they're going to be, there's going to be enough representation, I think, from Oppenheimer at ASCO for me to kind of stay behind this year and kids have school, their final week of school is next week. So I kind of want to be around for that. Well, Jared, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you've had your genome sequence and if you found it useful. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.